0: Essentially, you'll hear the stories you won't find on their professional bios. And of course, you'll learn a bit about their practice. Now, let's get to the episode. This episode features a conversation with Ralph Rodriguez. Ralph is an of counsel out of Foley's Miami office. He's a general litigator, although he also has a focus on matters related to construction. In this conversation, Ralph reflects on his experience growing up in Miami, attending the University of Florida for college and the University of Miami for law school. But Ralph also may just have the most unique practice that I've featured on this show because in a prior life, Ralph was a law enforcement officer. So before going to law school, he was a police officer, he was a detective, and he was also a federal agent for the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. There are a number of things in this show and experiences that Ralph has had that I personally find hard to believe. Things like being featured on the show Cops. His unit was followed for that show. So if you remember that, you may know what I'm talking about. And things like working undercover, literally you know, running drugs in the speedboat while working as a police officer in Miami. I'm at a loss for words for the tremendous professional experience that Ralph gained even before law school, but what you will hear in this conversation is in his nearly two decades of practicing, he's added even more to that. So while I hope you marvel at the amazing law enforcement career that Ralph had and the what he learned and was able to bring to his legal practice, I hope you appreciate the many insights that Ralph shares about being a litigator. This conversation was so much fun. I was so grateful to get Ralph on the show, and I hope you enjoy our discussion. Ralph, welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you. Let's just jump in and have you give your professional introduction.
1: Hi, thank you, Ralph Rodriguez. I'm a litigator here at Foley & Lardner. I specialize in construction law and have been practicing for about 25 years now.
0: This is awesome. I'm so excited to have you on because as I mentioned before we started recording, Larry Perlman actually said, you gotta talk to Ralph. He just has a really interesting past. So we are gonna dive into that, but let's start at the beginning. Where are you from? Where did you
1: grow up? So I'm um, originally born in Cuba, came to the United States in 1963, raised in Miami, Florida. I'm a Miami boy. I went to school here and then went to school, undergrad at the University of Florida, where I studied both architectural design and criminal justice. And then I came back down to Miami after graduating from undergrad, worked here for a while in law enforcement, and then decided to go to law school at the University of Miami.
0: All right. So we have a lot to unpack. And as you know, I can't just let you get away with you like, yep, moving on. Let's talk about lot. Nope. So you said you came to the U.S. from Cuba. So how old were you when you came? And can you just reflect a little bit on what that transition was like for you?
1: Well, obviously, I don't remember much about that process. I was two years old at the time. My dad, interesting guy, he was with the U.S. Army. He was an airborne ranger. He was stationed in World War II. He was in Okinawa for a while. Wow. And he went back to Cuba after his service and met my mom. And in 63, when the revolution was taking place and all the changes were, the political changes were occurring in Cuba, he managed to get us out and we came up to New Jersey was where we first went, Cherry Hill, New Jersey, where we had an uncle who was teaching there in the school, Spanish studies. And we eventually migrated to Miami, where we settled as our hometown.
0: And what was it like growing up in Miami?
1: I loved it. I'm a beach guy. I love the water the people are great. A lot of, there's a big, large Cuban community here that, so, you know, it was, we're kind of spoiled because it's not like that all over the country. So, you know, we kind of forget how it is in other parts of the country. It was nice year round. There's no snow here. So we don't have those changes of the season. So a lot of outdoor activities, able to do a lot of sports. I really enjoy it very much. And I, I really like Miami a lot.
0: I was just thinking, and there's so many things that have been difficult about this past year. So for listeners, we're recording this in what's now, I guess, May 2021. So we're sort of, the world is sort of starting to open up post-COVID lockdown. But the other day I ran across a photo, that's from the Miami airport, where I was at whatever the Cuban restaurant is in one of the main terminals. And I saw that photo and I started longing to visit Miami just for the food, like just just for the Cuban food. So you saying that it's like, yes, I really appreciate the Cuban culture in Miami, but I also want to ask so if I would have found you say around the age of 10 or 12, you mentioned sports. What were you into? What what would I have found you doing? So at 10,
1: 11 years old, I was playing baseball like many of my Cuban compatriots. We really loved baseball. I was a third baseman, and I actually played almost every position. I could play pitcher because I was I had a strong arm, play center field, catcher, whatever. Third base was my favorite position. I also played football in high school. Later on, I liked soccer, a lot of soccer. And then I also did intercollegiate and uh, wrestling in the high school level, the Greco-Roman wrestling.
0: Wow. So you played it. That's a lot of sports. And you're talking to somebody, I've shared this in the podcast a lot. I've was not sports inclined as a child. Okay. <laughs> so, some people might think I appear somewhat athletic now, but I'm like, oh, no, this was not me as a kid. <laughs> so as you mentioned high school, what was the thought process, I don't know, with attending college or what did you think you were going to do with your life if I would have found you back during that high school time?
1: So it's interesting because early on, even when I was in my elementary school, I had made a kind of a commitment to myself to be the first one in my family to go to college. It was always a goal of mine to be that first person to kind of, you know, reach a professional status and establish ourselves here in the United States. And I was always driven in that direction. And I've always been working towards that. I was fortunate enough to have some really good grades in high school. And I was admitted to the University of Florida. Where I went straight there for the first four years. And for me, it was, I was really proud of the fact that I was able to graduate with a, with a degree and show my parents, you know, that I, we'd done right here and that he had met, my mom and dad had made the right decision to bring us to this country.
0: Absolutely. I can only imagine how proud they were of you when you started college. I'm curious if, I don't know if there's much to share about it, but what was that transition to college like? for you as a first generation American going to college.
1: So it was tough. <laughs> Never been away from home. So, you know, I, I moved up to Gainesville, Florida. I lived in dormitories and getting adjusted, doing everything on your own. My mom's a typical Cuban mom who kind of nurtured and cuddled us a lot. And so this was the first time actually that I was out on my own, doing things on my own, making my own decisions. And it was it was exciting, but at the same time challenging, right? Because you had to balance school. And then I also ended up working. I, I worked all the way through college. I had a night job where I worked as a security guard in a large chain hotel. I had the midnight shift, and I would work from 7 at night to 7 in the morning. And then I would get up and have a couple hours sleep, and then I'd go to school during the day. And then I'd do it again uh, every day. That was my schedule.
0: You probably saw my face as you said seven to seven because you said you get a couple hours sleep, but probably literally just a couple of hours sleep doesn't sound like there's much time for sleep in there.
1: Yeah, you know, there wasn't. I would sleep in between classes too, you know, because I would have lulls, so I would take a nap and then get up. But my family, you know, they were of limited means, so I ended up having to get student loans to, to pay to, to go to school, and then eventually I got law school loans too that to go to law school. But I paid my own way and I worked on my own. That was good too because I look back now and I'm really proud of that that accomplishment.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think you mentioned architecture. Did I hear that right? So tell me a bit about that and why you focused on that.
1: Well, I like design. I like designing things. I I enjoy drawing. I I actually can draw and I enjoy drawing. And to me, the whole concept of designing and creating new things was really interesting. I enjoy it. To this day, I, I still I do that in, in my own private life. We built our own house here in Miami, which we my wife and I designed. I'm working on a project now in North Carolina, where we're going to build a new house, hopefully in the near future. So I'm excited about that.
0: That is wonderful. And, you know, sorry, listeners, but Ralph, if there's, if you ever draw anything and want to email it to me, I would love to see it. I don't know if I'll be able to share it with our listeners, (laughs) but I'm looking out for myself right now. So tell me more about you get that degree. I'm assuming it's because you thought you were going to graduate and do something in design or architecture, but that was the plan. Yeah. So tell me more. What, What happens after college?
1: So I'm in school, and uh, I have a bunch of friends that are into the criminal justice program. And I meet Dr. Shekman, who was a professor at the University of Florida, who I, I really began to admire a lot. And I started to take some of his classes, police reform, and a lot of the things are actually being talked about today. Mm-hmm. But we were dealing with it back then, over 20 years ago. Okay, I got really interested in law enforcement, and I it also it called me. I, I kind of I found it exciting. As things turned out, I was pursuing a dual major and my, I got the degree in criminal justice first and graduated in 1984. I was thinking of going back to finish the other semester for architectural design, but I never finished that. I went into law enforcement when I came back to Miami, which my parents weren't too fond of. They weren't too happy about it. I certainly enjoyed my time in law enforcement.
0: And you know, you're going to have to tell me more about it. So you said you went into law enforcement where, doing what, tell me more.
1: So I joined up with the Metro Dade Police Department, which is the equivalent of the Sheriff's Office here in Dade County. I worked there from 1985 through about 1990, 1991, where uh, I did everything from uniform patrol, and then I came up the ranks into investigators, and I became a detective in the Narcotics Bureau. And then I was doing a lot of drug interdiction work and undercover work here in Miami through the 80s, through the 90s.
0: All right. So I want to get a little more into the detail about that because it's not every day I talk to someone that was a police officer before they were a lawyer. And it's a little bit unfair because as I mentioned, when we, we started, Larry Perlman is who connected us. This is my first time having a real conversation with you. So I don't know if the listeners always appreciate that frequently, the guests, like the first time really talking to me is while we're recording, we don't have on your bio that you did this. So I didn't prepare really specific questions about that experience. But I would love if you could just reflect a bit more on particularly that transition to detective you know knowing you're talking to someone right now who's yeah i've watched tv about you know what it means to be a you know kind of a beat cop versus a detective but i would love if you could just reflect even more on that experience and maybe even how it, and why it was that you went on to become a detective
1: so i enjoyed the investigative aspect of it and working a case so as a police officer in a uniform in a marked car you're responding to calls you, know, you get a call through the dispatcher and you go to see the victim or you go to a traffic accident. You do different things, but you're always responding. But as an investigator, a lot of times you can be initiating an investigation or working a specific group, targeting and being proactive to prevent a crime from occurring. And that's what I really kind of enjoyed about the investigative aspect of the work that we did, especially here in Miami during the nineteen eighties where we had a huge drug problem here and where a lot of drugs were coming in from the Bahamas. And we were able to do a lot of interdiction work. We set up an operation here, just one of the few that we were involved in, where we would serve as the go-between between between the Bahamians and the Colombians as the transportation service. So we would be bringing in speedboats, And they thought we were, you know, just like them in the business. And we would connect, we would pick up in the Bahamas and bring here to Miami and then begin to distribute here. And we would do controlled deliveries and then we would capture everybody at one time. It was kind of a cool operation.
0: I would say so. I'm sitting here and you're saying this because I know it's no big deal to you. I get that it you know, was in another in another lifetime in a way, right? because you've also been practicing for quite some time. But I'm sitting here and I'm imagining essentially a scene out of Miami Vice except it's police officers undercover, presumably driving, like you said, speedboats so that you can essentially capture the bad guys in the drug ring. And it's just not every day that I talk to someone who's personally had that experience. <laughs> so I just have to pause on that for one moment and make sure the listener understands what you just said your prior job was.
1: Yeah, a lot of it had to do with meeting uh, folks here and, and setting up those operations. So, you know, in the movies, they kind of aggrandize that and glamorize it all, but it's not quite like that, you know. A lot of times I'm meeting with people and these like, you know, really dirty garages or homes that are barricaded with gates. You know, you got to go through a series of lock measures before you actually get inside the house and then you're meeting with people. So it's kind of a daunting situation. But at the end of the day, what we would do is uh, I would meet people. And my favorite place to meet people would be the Dairy Queen. (laughs) I knew nothing was going to happen there. We were having ice cream. It was fun, open. So there was very little of anything going wrong. And most people were at ease, which was the most important thing—is putting everybody at ease. So, develop the trust, so that there's no, no concern for any violence or any anything to go wrong.
0: That all makes a lot of sense. Like you said, it being you know less glamorous than you imagine. Ultimately, you're doing your job. Although I know there's a ton of stories, probably many of which you know we probably couldn't or even shouldn't get into on the podcast. But I feel it. I feel it. I'm like, there's a lot of stories here. But I'm curious, also. As a detective or as a police officer, were you often working with prosecutors as well, or was there exposure there?
1: So I worked a lot with the local prosecutors. Miami-Dade County under Janet Reno was our U.S. state attorney at the time, who eventually became a U.S. attorney. And Janet Reno had a task force here that we worked with, and we had a special narcotic unit. I worked with just those prosecutors who would help us develop our search warrants, do our undercover operation plans. We were working in unison to make sure that, you know, once we, we had the investigation up and running, that we would do it in a way where we would have everything kind of legally tied up so that when they came time to prosecute, they had all the evidence they needed to prosecute the case successfully.
0: Now did that start planting the seed of your interest in attending
1: law school or how did that work? It certainly did. So what happened was at the time, in the 90s, the federal agencies were having, a they didn't have enough Spanish-speaking agents to really deal with the problem at the federal level. And so I was approached by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Farms. So uh, we worked as part of a task force, and I had a lot of federal agents who were working with us. In fact, our squad was on that Bad Boys uh, program when it first came out. And so we had a camera crew that would follow us, you know, with our raids and our search warrants all the time. And we would have to wear masks, so people couldn't see who we were. Wait, I'm sorry. The Bad Boys program, like, a, was that a reality? It was a reality show that was created back uh, about police. It was at the very beginning, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, they started in Miami. It's funny because
0: I mean, it rang a bell, and then I was thinking, wait, no, it was kind of sim- it's similar to Cops, right? But
1: it that was the program. It was the Cops program? Yeah. Yeah. And I think the song was Bad Boys. Bad. Yes.
0: Yeah, so wait. So you or your unit was on that show. Many times, yes. Wow. That's also amazing (laughs) and surprising. But sorry, go on. You were kind of laying the groundwork for that path and the interest to to law school.
1: So what happened was I actually applied to the Bureau of Alcohol Tobacco and Farms. As an agent? As an agent. Okay. So
0: the ATF.
1: With ATF, the idea was for me to go to law school at night because, you know, as a a narcotic detective, I was working afternoon shifts and midnight shifts because that's when all the stuff happens. And I really didn't have time, and so as uh, I decided to join the ATF, and they gave me the opportunity to go to school, I was able to go to night school at the University of Miami, who had a night program for law students. And so I joined the ATF, and with that, I began to work at the federal level. Of course, my work at the federal level was dramatically different than my work at the state and county level. And eventually, what we ended up doing is we had a specialized task force dealing with public corruption we had a big problem here in Miami-Dade County during that time where we had uh, public officials law enforcement officers that were selling their badge or taking bribes so part of my work in my unit was to ferret that out capture those folks and stop that
0: so you're doing that while also going to law school at night yes i just want to get very clear <laughs> very clear on that because i've you know speaking to it, it's kind of like it's all in a day's job but that's no small task. With the night program, I'm guessing it was stretched out then for for longer than what would typically be the three-year program if you were full-time?
1: Only a semester or two. It was like wow. three and a half years. And then eventually I transferred back to the day program in my last year, in my third year. So I was able to do it in the three years. I was heading up a task force at the time called Pumpkinhead. The task force was called Pumpkinhead because it was a group of home invaders that were working with certain elements of law enforcement that had been compromised and were doing what we call home invasions, where they would come into a house and they would pose as police officers serving fake warrants. They would have police cars and everything and the occupants of the house would think, oh, they're they're serving a warrant, but they weren't. They were coming in to just rip off the people in the house and they would tie everybody. So we would do these uh, reverse sting operations where we set these things up, as you can imagine, some of those didn't end up so good for the bad guys.
0: No, not at all. And I also because I want to ask a little bit about your experience in law school while you're also you know, essentially working full time for the ATF. What was that like for you doing both? And then also, I don't know, I mean, you probably had to take some criminal law classes. It's interesting sitting in a criminal law class with you know, a former police officer, current federal agent. So if you could share a bit about, because you have some real life experience and context at that point.
1: True story. So I was taking criminal procedure with Professor Simon, who was teaching at the University of Miami. Great guy. I really liked him a lot. We were having a class and he knew I was an agent. So he called me up to ask me to frisk some of the students to show the students how a police officer would frisk people on the street. He would hide like certain weapons on him to see if we I could catch it. A couple of times he actually was able to to hide a knife in his sock where you know I I didn't see it. So it was kind of funny. We would do these kind of role plays and scenarios in the class and he would always call on me, ask me, you know, what what would the police officer do? What's the police officer thinking? And I would explain to him that, you know, the primary perspective of the police officer on the street dealing with a suspect is he wants to go home at night. So he's just looking for safety. He wants to be safe. The first thing they're trying to do is control the situation, be safe and avoid a threat. Professor Mahoney was my criminal law professor. She was excellent. I remember when we finished the class, she came to me and goes, Ralph, are you going to go into criminal law? And I said, no, professor, I'm not going to do criminal law. She goes, oh, what a shame. She was almost heartbroken because I did well in the class. I'll do criminal defense work and I've done some criminal defense work. I actually had a couple of criminal cases. I kind of pick and choose the cases. I really prefer to do civil work.
0: That makes sense. But just to have that real on the ground understanding, because you probably saw in law school, although maybe the students were a bit older in the night program. But for me, I would have been, I don't know, 24 reading about stop and frisk <laughs> or whatever it is, or other criminal. Terry <laughs> v. Ohio, that's the stop and frisk case. Exactly. Although the bit of context that I did have was I was an investigative intern at the public defender service in D.C. while in college. Which in retrospect, and I don't mean this to disparage the organization because it's one of the, I think, best public defender uh, services in the country, but I was essentially a child going to talk to the complaining witnesses to take a statement. And yes, they trained me and I had a partner, so I wasn't out there alone. But I look back and I think I did a good job, but I'm like, it's kind of crazy that I was sent (laughs) to do that. But I learned a little bit about criminal procedure, having that experience. But generally speaking, you know, in criminal law or criminal procedure, I was like, it's all, all theoretical radical. So I find it so fascinating that it was very much practical for you, or you'd already learned some of it probably.
1: Well, to tell you the truth, if you're going to be an effective police officer or law enforcement, you need to know the law. If you know the law, you know how to exercise that and be able to, to build your case, and you can actually be very effective. And you need to know the bounds and what the limits are, right? Especially with the Fourth Amendment and search and seizure, which is what we were dealing with a lot and being able to stop or search people, how you would go about effectuating searches. That was one of the things that, you know, we focused a lot on. And because of the fact that I was one of the few guys in the local police department that actually had a college degree, I was the guy stuck writing the warrants. Mm. I would write all the search warrants and work with the state attorney's office. And then we would go to the judge's house at night and get the warrant signed and then go execute it. Wow. It was, a lot of, it was very exciting. So you're in law
0: school while also working for the ATF. You eventually get your law degree. Now, was the original plan to continue with the ATF or was it after this, you know, there's other things I want to do with my law degree? So tell me more about that.
1: So the original plan was for me to continue with ATF and liaison with the U.S. Attorney's Office and prosecute federal firearm violations. That was the original plan. And then Right around that period of time, Waco kind of hit, and that was a big thing. And then Ruby Ridge with the FBI followed, and there was a big shakeup in the agency, the ATF. There was a lot of uncertainty there. Eventually, what happened was I had an opportunity to go into private practice with a really large national firm that had offered me a summer internship. And, you know, at the time, I looked at it and I began to realize, where am I going to be, you know, 20, 30 years from now? Am I going to be as young as I am now? Am I going to be able to still do what I'm doing now? Or, And I realized, you know, that I really needed to, to make a career change. And a good friend of mine, Omar Aleman, who was my mentor at the Drug Enforcement Administration, where I, I was trained by the DEA while we were at the local level, and I attended a special school, he told me once that with – Undercover work, which is what I was doing a lot of at the time, you need to learn when it's time to leave it. You start to cut corners and you start to kind of get tired of it and you're not really into it, you make mistakes.
0: Yeah, it's even more dangerous.
1: That's the thing. A mistake at that point could cost you your life. I was kind of losing the passion for what I was doing at that time. And I was really into the law profession and learning the law and becoming a lawyer. I was really excited about that. And so I decided to leave. I believe it was 1997. I worked with uh, Holland and Knight as a summer associate. And then Bill Davis of the Miami Foley office gave him my first job out of law school. I joined with Bill and with Leslie, who's our managing partner now, mm-hmm. back in 97 and 98, at a former firm where they were at, Buchanan Ingersoll. And I worked with them. And I'm glad to say that I came back full circle <laughs> and came back to work with him here at Florida Miami.
0: Oh my gosh, that's fantastic! Of course, it's you know a small world, and I haven't gotten into that much on the show. But hey, particularly for the law students listening, you'll be shocked at what a small world is or a small legal community if you after a, you know a couple of years into practice. Okay, so all of that time spent in law enforcement, you move into private practice. I'm guessing you knew that litigation was your interest, but what you know? how did you decide what it was you wanted to do or what was there to do when you moved into private practice?
1: So I always knew I wanted to be a litigator. I, I wanted to vindicate and fight for people's rights, do the right thing, and I enjoyed the whole challenge of the, being in court and in trial and being an advocate for my client. I just didn't know what I was gonna specialize in, but I knew I wanted to be in litigation. True story, when I joined with Bill and Leslie, there was a construction case that came in the door for a client of ours, and I remember being in the conference room there with Bill and Leslie, and Bill's asking if anybody knew how to read architectural plans. Well, guess what? I was the only one in the room who knew how to read architectural plans. So I raised my hand. Bill, I can read architectural plans. He goes, you're signed up. Come on. So he puts me on the case, and that's my first construction case that I had. It was an arbitration that we had here that lasted almost three months, document intensive, like all construction cases are. We didn't have computers in those days. I had to literally have all the exhibits in hard paper form, ready to go, all organized. It was just brutal. And from that day on, I knew that what I wanted to do was construction litigation. And I developed my niche from that point on.
0: I love picking up that thread. So the best part I think of, I think of life, but I'll focus on professional careers is, there's often a golden thread and you don't see how it's stretching, but you look back. And so it's just so wonderful that we picked back up on where we started when you went to college of, you know, architecture and design. That makes me so thrilled. And I think you can hear my voice, how excited I am, but I'm actually like tamping down on my level of excitement because I just think that is so wonderful and amazing. Let's talk about that. You know, you've been practicing for for quite some time. I also love your path because one of the many goals of this show is to show there's no prototypical lawyer. There's no prototypical path. And yeah, you know, what we have in common is we went to law school and were licensed. But other than that, a lot of people have widely different journeys. And, you know, I think you certainly have a unique story. But, you know, in particular, now that you're at Foley, tell me about your practice. You said construction law. I've had litigators on. Maybe listeners can guess what construction law means, but give me some details. What does that mean as a practice area?
1: So, because in construction law is a very practice area. There's a lot. I mean, obviously, we're dealing with contracts, owner, contractor, client contracts, owner, architect contracts. We're dealing with all sorts of issues with materials, whether the material functions properly. So you got product liability thrown into there. We're also dealing with faulty or deficient work, so we're dealing with con- construction defects and how those defects are going to be remedied. One of the things I really love about my practice is when we get a case dealing with a particular issue with a design flaw or a material flaw or something of that sort, we have to retain experts and we begin to like analyze what went wrong with the product or what's wrong with the design or what's wrong with the work that was completed by that particular contractor or subcontractor. And you learn so much about how the materials work and how they're supposed to be and how the components are supposed to be put together. And that's one of the things I love about my practice. I'm always learning something new about the construction field and, and about life in general.
0: You're bringing back some memories for me. So I practiced not quite eight years, was a litigator in that time. And it's true, you really do develop expertise and at whatever that core issue is. So I did quite a bit of professional liability work for actually insurance brokers. And okay, so you hear that word, you're like, okay, but you know what are they fighting over? They're fighting over insurance coverage. And what would it pay for? It would pay for the repair of different facilities that were damaged. And so you're getting into damages. And so I started learning all sorts of things about like flood remediation and flood cuts and where on the drywall you would make the flood cut to make sure there wasn't mold. And all these things that I think someone would be like, oh, you're a lawyer. They don't realize that you really do just can develop these expertise. And it becomes extremely random because depending on what you are litigating over, you might be like, oh yeah, I know a thing or two about that. And so I I love that you highlighted that because it's true. As a litigator, you often are subject matter expert in what can be some really uniquely interesting, esoteric, I'd say at times, things. And so for you, I'm sure it relates to a, a lot of different, like you mentioned the different types of supplies used or, you know, specific types of contracts. And I think that's absolutely right. And I would also love to get some of your advice to litigators, because it's interesting to me, you came in with a certain sort of context. You had all this experience in law enforcement. So you generally had an idea, I think, of how courts worked in a way that a lot of maybe brand new lawyers wouldn't if they hadn't clerked. But then you switched to the civil side. So do you have any thoughts or, you know, recommendations you give to young litigators so that they can start figuring out what's going on.
1: Well, one of the things that I benefited from was being in the courtroom a lot. So as the case agent, I had the benefit of being both the undercover agent and the case agent, okay?
0: And I'm sorry, and I'm so glad you raised that cuz I actually wanted to ask you about that earlier to, you know, how much you were in court when you were still in law enforcement. Yeah, so please say more.
1: So, what would happen was I'd be at the table with the prosecutor prosecuting the claim. I had the pleasure of working with some of the Best defense lawyers that this country has. I mean, Roy Black is a personal friend of mine, even though we've had many cases against each other, and he's cross examined me many times. He's professional, and I count him as a friend. And he actually was my law professor in one of my classes, also. His partner, Howard Shrebnik, as well. And there's a federal judge here, Robert Scola, who I know, who was also at the time a defense lawyer. It's a small community here in, in South Florida. And so the folks in, in the legal profession, one way or the other, you know, we all end up kind of going around and hooking up again. And I was at the table, and I would prepare the case with the prosecutor, the U.S. attorney, and I would also be the witness, the primary government witness. I would sit on the stand and I would testify. I can't tell you how many times I've been a witness in federal cases. And the nice thing about that is that as a witness and as a case agent, you develop knowledge about how to present your case. What's the best way to present the evidence? What's the best way to address it? How to open up the case? How to close the case? It's important. And how to testify, that's also important. One of the biggest challenges sometimes we have as litigators is when we got to rely on other witnesses to tell their story. So what I try to do is when I bring in a client or I'm working with an expert witness or what have you, I always want to interview them and kind of go through a mock proceeding where I ask them to testify and we role play so I can get their testimony. I think that's something that litigators should do is they should try to test their client's case and make sure that they walk their clients or their witnesses through their direct testimony and even sometimes role play and cross-examine them to test the waters and try to attend as many hearings or as many trials as they can. I sometimes I go and I sit in trials just to see how other people do it because you can always learn from just observing what works, what doesn't work. You've said so
0: many things. (laughs) I don't think I'll be able to go back and unpack all of them. But okay, the thing you just said about getting into court just to watch, that is just a huge piece of advice. You know, a lot of firms will work, you know, bring the associate with, they can shadow you. But hey, associates, if you have free time, you can go watch court proceedings. Sure, certain proceedings are closed, but a lot of them are open. And you can count that as practice building Time. So no, it's not client billable, but it is time where you're learning your practice. So that is hugely important. And also, I was just thinking, Ralph, what a tremendous advantage it is when you're prepping a witness to, like you said, have been the witness so many times <laughs> the past pe- because I think most attorneys, I mean, maybe just maybe they've had that experience, maybe, but I would say most haven't. So for you to have that and truly know, you know, the experience that you're trying to prep this person for because you've sat literally sat in their spot. That's huge. Like I can't state what a great it is that you've had that experience.
1: It helps. And it can be very frustrating too, because I'm sure you've had clients that want to do it their way and you kind of say, well, I don't know if that's going to fly. You know, I don't know if that's going to pass the smell test. They want to say certain things or they want to testify in a certain way. What I do is I can only recommend and give advice to the client, right? And, and we try to make sure that we present the facts. And that's also important, too. One of the things that I developed that I think has helped me in my career is develop the facts. It's all in the facts, okay? And if you've got good facts, you should prevail. Mm-hmm. But you've got to develop the facts. And sometimes we lose it, you can find that, that needle in the haystack by going through documents. And you've got to make sure that you're meticulous in that process.
0: No, that's exactly right. And that's another key, I think, for junior lawyers is you can become the master of a lot of those facts, or at least an aspect of those facts. But going back to the discussion about prepping witnesses, and I didn't get extensive experience with this because I didn't practice that long, but you know, I, I had some. And I always found it so interesting because when you're prepping a witness for a direct examination, you know, you can do a ton of prep, so much prep. But when that person gets nervous. What happens on the when they're on the stand? Who knows? But then also, and I, you know, the litigators listening know this, but for the law students listening, when you're prepping somebody for a direct, you know, you're prepping them actually for the cross. Should I say in particular, you're prepping them to be questioned by someone else, and you're trying to undo some natural human behaviors, which is to be helpful and sort of offer more than is asked. So I just remember an example, you know, as a litigator, you'd give is. If someone asks you, do you know what the time is? The answer is yes or no. The answer isn't, oh yeah, it's, it's 10 o'clock, you know, p.m. Eastern time. <laughs> and so, this trying to teach people, particularly on cross.
1: have to give so much.
0: To not just, please literally just answer the question. And I know it feels mean, I know it feels mean, but just answer. Only what was asked. Make them ask the follow up, please. Because you volunteering a bunch of stuff, it's usually not good.
1: <laughs> it opens up more questions, but unfortunately, that's not how we communicate as human beings. And typically, what you got to work with is that your client is already used to communicating in a certain way. You're not going to unpack that or undo that in the short period of time that you have with them in preparing for a trial. So, what I try to do is, I always put myself in the shoes of the other side or opposing counsel. Look at my weaknesses. What are my weak points? What are the points that we're going to have to deal with that are going to be hard at trial? What do we have to overcome? And that's what I use in my cross-examination of my client so that they're prepared. If you've done a good job, <laughs> your client's going to be asked questions. The same questions you asked of your client in a control setting, he's going to be ready. And those same questions are going to be asked at trial. And there's not going to be any surprises. That's right, you know. And
0: Ralph, as I was talking, like I actually think I got that backwards. It's also on direct. Like, just answer the question I'm asking you. I will ask the follow up. I don't need you to volunteer a bunch of stuff.
1: They're always going to give more than that than what the question asked for, and that's just a human behavior. And you just got to be able to go with it.
0: That's exactly right. Well, and I think overall as a litigator, and I think this is true for all types of lawyers, but just the importance of communication skills, whether it be in prepping a witness or in the advocacy that you're writing. And that's something that I'm deeply grateful for, because even though I don't practice anymore, I use those skills that I had to hone every single day. I mean even in this podcast, right? Like even my ability to ask questions in a podcast, the foundation of that probably came in some way from I when I was litigating. I can't stress that enough for people. If you're a law student and, you know, there's aspects of communication that you struggle with, being an attorney will help you sharpen those skills <laughs> because
1: you'll have no choice. <laughs> we do a lot of public speaking and we have to get up there and we have to make arguments. We have to present our arguments in a logical manner too and in a way that it's understood. Sometimes like in construction, we're dealing with some very complicated issues and we have to break it down in a way that the jury and sometimes even the judges can understand it. And that's always the key. And one more thing I'll tell you is that that we sometimes miss is we need to tell our clients when they're testifying that they need to look at the jury or the judge, depending on what kind of trial it is, and make eye contact. you know, we forget about this and they have a tendency to look at the lawyer who's asking the questions and they don't make any high contact with the judge or the jury. And that's key because it's all about credibility, right? Do they believe your story? Are you credible? You know, and you need to make that kind of contact to develop hopefully some rapport with the judge or the jury, depending on how long your case is. That's right. And well, even
0: more broadly, you're just exhibiting that understanding of human behavior that I think good litigators have. And you know, you'll see those stereotypes of a litigator being really theatrical, but some of those theatrics are because they're trying to connect. And when you are in a courtroom and often you're tied to the podium, but you know I've seen litigators who will, because of that problem that you just said, they will walk so that the witness has to look at the jury because they're standing in front of the jury. But all of that, and that's actually the part of litigation that I find to be really good fun, just sort of that like almost acting or improv skills that you need to be able to really engage people. And and as we wrap up, I wanted to ask one more question before getting to my final questions, just re-raise something that we've already touched on, which is just how small the community is. So I mentioned it earlier, you highlighted it again with the fact that you've gotten to work with some amazing attorneys while you were in law enforcement who have since gone on to do even more amazing things. And that's another thing. I, you know, Maybe you can say a few words about it just to stress because you certainly have the ability to look back and see that. But I don't know that young lawyers can really appreciate just this is a marathon, not a sprint. Someone you may be adverse to as a second year could be a client in 15 years. Or if you could just talk a little bit more about that and the community aspect.
1: So we're all in this together, right? And especially the legal community is a It's actually a very small community. And as you get into your local bars and the local practice, it's even smaller. And what I could tell you about that is that as a philosophy, I try not to burn a bridge with anyone. And the one thing that my father and mother instilled in me was that the one thing that I have that can never be taken away from me is my credibility. And you don't sell that to anybody. You don't give that away. You don't. You just don't disparage that, and you certainly have to value that. And I treat everyone that I come in contact with in the same way that I would like to be treated, with respect. And I can't tell you how many times that has come back in dividends for me because those same people that you're dealing with today as attorneys are going to be the future judges, the future governors, the future presidents of this country. These are people that are going to know you, who are going to go on to do other things. And if you had a good relationship with them and you were professional with them and you treated them fairly, they're going to remember. And that has incredible dividends and benefits in your career as you continue on in your practice and as you move forward. And so that's why it's important to treat everyone with respect and courtesy.
0: I really hope that lands with people. David Sanders, who's the episode before yours, actually, a partner out of the D.C. office, he said something similar about be nice to everybody. But I think when people are young in your career, you can often just be super focused on that that senior partner or just on your law professor, right? You're not focused on your colleagues in law school or your colleagues in the office or even your legal admin and opposing counsel. And truly, truly, you need to be credible and kind with it everyone and treat everyone as a human being.
1: This is important. Sometimes you're going to have clients that are going to come and go, right? But that opposing counsel, you're going to have another case with that opposing counsel again and sometimes again and again. You you got to keep that in mind and keep it professional. Sometimes we become very passionate about our clients' cases and we get involved in it, and that's good to be passionate. But don't ever cross that professional line And that you always want to be courteous. You always want to be professional. Even when you don't agree with opposing counsel or they're doing things that you know you find to be distasteful, there's always a high road and you can deal with it in a different manner without losing your cool or without losing your professional integrity.
0: That's exactly right. And sometimes that opposing counsel will later go in-house. There you go. And you'll even see they may reach out to you because they so respected working against you, right? And now, now they're a client. But as we, we wrap up, Ralph, I'm going to ask my two final questions in tandem, which is Is there anything we haven't touched on that you'd like to touch on? And also, you've given so much great advice. But after that, what are your final sort of takeaway words of advice for listeners, you know, navigating a legal career or perhaps in law school?
1: So if I'm going to leave with any words of advice is simply to follow your passion, do what you like. I've learned on early in life that if you're doing what you like and you're following your passion, you're going to be good at it. If you're doing something that you don't like or that you're not really emotionally into, you're going to just be half good at it and maybe mediocre at best. The best advice I can give to all these lawyers, find something that you really enjoy and follow it and, and follow your passion. And you're most likely going to succeed and be very good at it.
0: So extremely wise words. And with that, I'll just ask if a listener wants to reach out, you know, send you an email, ask you questions, can they find you on Foley's website and,
1: and email you? By all means, anytime. Anyone can give me a call. I'm happy to answer any questions and serve as a source for anyone. I really enjoy being here at Foley. The Foley family has been really good to me, and this is a great place to practice. And I just want to thank everybody for being able to practice with all the lawyers here and the staff here at Foley. And thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much, Ralph.
0: Thank you for listening to The Path and the Practice. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and join us again next time. And if you did enjoy it, please share it, subscribe and leave us a review as your feedback on the podcast is important to us. Also, please note that this podcast may be considered attorney advertising and is made available by Foley & Lardner LLP for informational purposes only. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship Any opinions expressed herein do not necessarily reflect the views of Foley and Lardner, LLP, its partners, or its clients. Additionally, this podcast is not meant to convey the firm's legal position on behalf of any client, nor is it intended to convey specific legal advice.